Welcome to episode 29 of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is the podcast where Mark Patrick and myself discuss the music of the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes and Twitter at Pleasures Known. And you can click on the link in the description that will take you to a Spotify playlist created just for this episode. Now here's Patrick to introduce today's band. When Andy, Paul and Winston took to the stage at a club in Liverpool in 1978, the small crowd assembled didn't know quite what to expect, especially because Winston was a tape recorder. What they wouldn't have anticipated was that within three or four years, this peculiar band, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, would rattle off a string of hit singles and eccentric inventive albums, placing them firmly on the front line of the electro-pop invasion of the early to mid-80s. However, success in the American charts in 1986, with the somewhat forgettable If You Leave, didn't do much for the credibility of OMD with the purists, nor did later albums on which the boys from the Wirral began to sound much like everyone else. But did that detract from the legacy of Andy, Paul and Winston, or does their back catalogue of songs about everything from B-29 superfortress bombers to 15th century French heroines still generate a spark of electricity? Really? Forgettable? Is that what you thought that's? <laughs> <laughs> I think I said somewhat forgettable, didn't I? So, okay. So I think okay. he removed a stronger word, mm. so he'd be grateful yeah. that he just said. Well, yeah. just for the record, I liked If You Leave. Yeah, we did have what I'm calling the battle of the adjective <laughs> about If You Leave in a bit of a texting frenzy yesterday. Graham, you were horrified. Well, it wasn't that I was horrified. It probably isn't as good a song as, uh, or not representative mm. of OMD as much as the earlier stuff. But I think as a commercial pop song, I thought it was pretty good. I was going to go with anodyne, and you said that you had a pack of <laughs> packet of anodynes to yeah. freshen your breath yes. recently. I thought that was a breath mint. <laughs> um, well, given that this is 1985, should we go back a year or two? <laughs> or are we done? <laughs> no, 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 no. We're starting at the end this time. Oh, we're going right to the end first. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, we're going full Pulp Fiction. <laughs> no linear narrative in this. Should we adjourn to a village? <laughs> a, vi- a village far, far away? <laughs> On the outskirts of Liverpool. Yeah, I'll, I'll put in some harp music here. A small town called, I think it's, I think it's pronounced Mels, M-E-O-L-S. So um, is the Wirral like a peninsula, is it? I think so, So yeah. I thought that they just came from the Wirral, but is, it, uh, is there a town within that that they came from? It's about 15 kilometres from Liverpool, from the you know, centre of Liverpool. And Andy McCluskey and Paul Humphreys knew each other in primary school, but only really became friends, I think, when they were about 16. According to my information, Paul was fascinated by the electrical rewiring of his house when he was a kid. <laughs> well, well, I think most kids are. Really. <laughs> That's the normal phase a lot of kids go through. <laughs> <laughs> the electrical wiring phase. And when he heard Autobahn on the radio in 1975, it was the first day of the rest of his life. <laughs> um, one band that Andy played in around about this time had the excellent name of Hitler's Underpants. Mm, well, I think it had two Zs. It had, yeah, yeah, that's Which right. is even better. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And one flyer for a Hitler's Underpants gig read, I used to drink vodka until I discovered Hitler's Underpants. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what that means. Don't know what that means. <laughs> um, and they also had a cool band called Equinox in 1975. Ah, okay. Paul Humphreys was a roadie. I shouldn't say they had a band. He was the roadie for the band. But that is a real kind of electronic name. That's probably mm. influenced by Jean-Michel Jarre, mm. which, yeah. is, which is pretty cool in 1975. I'm going to try and bring this 
back to why, why we do this podcast, but yeah. the point is that they were kind of not really interested in the music that was around. They weren't interested in pub rock. They weren't interested in any of the kind of precursors to the punk movement, which makes them a little bit different, a little bit more interesting yeah, maybe yeah. in some ways. And we were talking about this before we started, like what's their story and what makes them a little bit different to the others? And I think that that's part of it. They were very much into craft work. I think they said they mm. wanted to be craft work. So I, I think their, their first proper band maybe was the id is that yeah. correct in 1977 yeah. so while other bands are out there doing clash impersonations and yeah, yeah. and all the rest of it they were doing a full-scale electronica thing mm, and they kind of had long shoulder length you know kind of hair and they were the kind of full hippie not in a flamboyant way because i think they're both relatively shy or they mm. were not mm. classically extrovert maybe a bit like the human league were in that respect of mm. just wanting to do something else than what everybody else was doing but saw the opportunity in this new movement to uh, maybe get themselves somewhere because anything kind of went and you were mm. allowed to be different and interesting and consequently could get a gig at uh, Eric's in Liverpool, which was, you know, one of the famous venues that threw up a lot of the, the bands at the time. Yeah. There's no, there's no problem for them to be able to put on, be put on the builder on a Thursday night. Yeah, that was the iconic Liverpool punk and then post-punk venue. Paul Humphreys was on um, keyboards and apparently he was in charge of making noises on electric piano and organ, which is a little bit similar to what uh, Eno did in Roxy, for instance. Mm. So I think that was maybe an indication of their influences rather than anything else. Well, he was really into the electronics. He wasn't a keyboard player or musician, mm. was he? He just really liked pulling things apart and rewiring. Tinkering. His, his, his auntie's radios, apparently, he used to rebuild them and make mm. things out of the circuit boards. and stuff. Loved like. rewiring. Yes, loved that. So you know, why? you know, I guess, I guess he was <laughs> able to. Back. He was able to turn his hand to being a keyboard player from that. Whereas mm. I think Andy had had played bass and guitar, but then ended up with a left-handed bass because that was the cheapest one available. Right. So yeah. he he's not left-handed. I always assumed he was. Wow. Yeah. He has the left hand bass because that was what was available. <laughs> so he learned to play upside down. And uh, yeah, so I think the Eid gradually kind of shed members. Until suddenly it was... It was just the two of them. Just the two of them and they, I think, borrowed a tape recorder, a reel-to-reel tape recorder from a friend of theirs. Mm-hmm. And then the three of them started, you know, started thinking in terms of... The three of them, one of them being the, the tape three, recorder. The, the three of them. <laughs> Not a real person. <laughs> I think that's called anthropomorphism. But, um, yeah, so the tape recorder, <laughs> which, well, it, they named it Winston, and as soon as it had a name, I was thinking of it as being a human being. So Yeah, but it wouldn't have been paid, though. Mm. <laughs> the wages would have still been split between the two. Surely. And it wouldn't have helped lug out afterwards. <laughs> no, either. That's right. So really. <laughs> really, it was just the two of <laughs> just them. Just the tape recorder and the two people. <laughs> um, shall, shall we talk about the first gig at Ericsson, Liverpool? Mm. Which I think October seventy eight. Yeah, October seventy eight. Um, and after two gigs, they met Tony Wilson of Factory Records, which is mm. pretty quick well, work. Isn't it true that apparently Martin Hannett was meant to produce their first single, but didn't? I think there there is a connection with Factory in that Tony Wilson's wife at the time had a cassette of their stuff and really liked them. Oh, wow. and she was badgering him, Tony, to have a listen to these guys. He wasn't that interested, but went, yeah, okay. And yeah, and I think organised for Martin Hannett to maybe uh, to get involved. To quote Tony Wilson's wife, Lindsay Reid, she said, I remember telling him I could hear this music in the charts. He must have been feeling indulgently fond of me that day. This is the 24-hour party people guy. <laughs> uh, because he patted me on the knee and told me, in that case, we'll put it out on factory just for you. 
Oh, that's nice. <laughs> which is, which is nice. Yeah. Not condescending, but yeah, <laughs> but but a nice condescending. Mm. I think. Yeah. I, I've actually got that Martin Zero, aka Martin Hannon, did produce Electricity, the single version. Oh, I'm not I, sure. Yeah, I have yeah. that somewhere in my yeah, life. Yeah, so like the legendary oh, okay. Joy Division producer and yes. all that. I've got here that the track was supposed to be produced by Factory Records producer Martin Hannon, but the uh, the A side was produced by a friend called Paul Collister, who went on to be their manager. Yeah, it was released twice though. Oh, okay. So yeah, I think it was three, three it. times altogether yeah. in the end. It was redone. Um, um, I think the, uh, if we can touch on the Liverpool music scene around that time and the kind of people who orchestral manoeuvres were kind of hanging out with, Andy McCluskey said, um, Eric's was home to alternatives and outsiders, the thinkers, the questioners and outcasts. Holly Johnson, um, subsequent singer of Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Pete Burns from Dead or Alive, Julian Cope, Two Drop Explodes, Ian McCulloch, Echo and the Bunnymen, Budgie from Susie and the Banshees, Bill Drummond from the KLF, and then he said, we, OMD, were outsiders, even among the outsiders, for the three reasons of looking like unreconstructed hippies, being from the other side of the river and playing electronic music. And so they were playing gigs with Joy Division and with Echo and the Bunny Men and you know, all, all these kinds of bands, and they were like, just these three geezers. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to stick with three, aren't you? <laughs> One of whom... Relied on one had to be plugged in for three, <laughs> three phase <What> electricity. Phase? <laughs> <laughs> I like the story that Stephen Morris from Joy Division said about playing gigs with OMD. He said, um, uh, Andy, Paul, and the Real to Real looked cool together. They had that self confidence all Liverpool bands seem to have. Mm. We'd wind them up getting them to go on straight after Amazing Ainsley, the Fire Eater. <laughs> How he got on the bill, I really can't say. Um, the trouble was, after he finished his death-defying act, the stage was engulfed in a cloud of noxious fumes. Health and safety would have had a field day. We'd toss a coin, as in Joy Division would toss a coin with OMD, to decide who'd go on next. If we lost, it'd be best of three. <laughs> so this was the kind of thing going on, the kind of banter going on between Joy Division and orchestral manoeuvres in the dark. I love the fact that fire-eating became a part of post-punk <laughs> yeah, in New no, no, that's right. Well, that's the next podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Julian Cope from Teardrop Explodes said, um, Andy McCluskey, a hippie we all called Leo Sayer, <laughs> had formed a group called Get This Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark. <laughs> and so he thought they were... Utterly woeful. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was interesting the kind of dynamics of the Liverpool scene. Liverpool but yeah, scene. they did get that deal with Factory Records. So yeah. you, but you that was a short-lived deal because they ended up on Din Disc, which was a subdivision of Virgin. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was just for that one single. So Factory is very much associated with bands like Joy Division, New Order, Happy Mondays, and so on. But mm. in fact, their third ever record was Electricity. By OMD, oh wow, okay. Dindisk was this offshoot of Virgin and they offered OMD a seven album deal worth £250,000 and OMD had been in existence for eight months at this stage. Mm. So they're kind of going... <laughs> so things are going okay. <laughs> things are going okay. Uh, Carol Wilson, the boss of Dindisk. Um, no relation. No relation, that's right. She said, when my colleagues at Din Disc saw orchestral manoeuvres, some said, you've got to stop Andy dancing like that. <laughs> so he had that kind of swinging arms yeah. dancing style. And, uh, yeah, it was like, please don't do that. But uh, And she said, how little did they know? And, you know, in years to come, lots of people imitated. Yeah, it, it became a thing, didn't it? Yeah. I think it had a name, but I can't remember what it was. Some mm. kind of dancing dad kind of. Dad dancing. Yeah. Dad dancing, yeah. Good, whatever it is. 
So the electricity single, which was pretty distinctive, and mm. I've always really liked it. I really liked it too, but I, I always have a, a problem with the idea of an electronic band calling its first single electricity. It's self-referential. <laughs> it is. It's like a reggae band writing a song called Pass the Duchy. They were basically inspired by Kraftwerk, so mm. it was all about what Kraftwerk did, and Kraftwerk did a song called Radioactivity, which is you know a similar kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Mm. And Annie McCloskey has said, Apparently, uh, his version is just a faster, punkier version of radioactivity. So that's mm. exactly what they were trying to do. They were copying them in every way. It's one of the most, I reckon, iconic keyboard riffs mm. of the time, I think. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I first heard it, I just loved it. You think of it as being sequenced because it was the era broadly speaking of you know sequence keyboards and all that mm. but you know if you look at the film clip and so on he's really playing i mean they didn't have they didn't really have sequences that would have come later they just had the human tape recorder can we clarify it was released three times so mm, this is why okay. there's some confusion yeah, yeah 79 on factory again in 79 on din disc and then in 80 on din disc yeah, so they yeah. really were backing this song big yeah time. No, no, no that's right <laughs> it's and got, um, it's got something it's got one, yeah. one reviewer uh, gary bushel is he Sounds Magazine? Yes. He didn't like electricity. He was coming at it more from your point of view, Graham. He said, who wants to listen to a bunch of scousers whining about electricity? <laughs> <laughs> Especially considering they didn't even have electricity in Liverpool at that time. <laughs> um, getting uh, back to you saying that they were playing the sequences live, what I really like about OMD is is the real bass. I mean, mm. you think of electronic bands, mm. obviously sequencing bass lines, but he used to play... Um, a real bass, and there's a song on that first album called Mysteriality. And uh, there's quite an obvious live chorus bass being played by Andy McCluskey. That's something I really yeah, love about yeah, OMD yeah. is that they were sticking with the live bass no matter what. Mm. And it was upside down. Yeah, yes, that's mm. right. So they've signed, they've signed to Dindis, the offshoot of um, Virgin, for a substantial amount of money, which they um, said at the time they couldn't believe they were offered. And yeah. instead of um, blowing it all, they built their own home studio with the um, advance. So they figured that they would have something to show for it when this eventually flopped. Yeah. Because no one's going to buy it, as, in <laughs> yeah. their own words. Um, so they'd end up at least owning a studio out of it. Um, yeah, first album was released in February 1980 under the under the Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark Name. I really liked this album. Three mm. singles on it were, were all fantastic. It was quite groundbreaking at the time. I don't think I heard it when it was released, maybe a bit later. But, mm. um, Patrick, were you were you across this in February 1980? No. I heard the second album first and then subsequently heard this album, which I think slightly spoils it because things did move on really quickly around that time and it did in 1981, you know, 82. It, this album sounded fractionally dated because Paul had an organ and something called a pianotron, which he'd bought for, for £25. This was an instrument from like the late 60s and it had preset sounds like piano and vibraphone and, and xylophone kind of sounds. And I think they'd only recently bought their first synthesizer, which had cost them about £60. And so it was really basic electronic synthesizer technology they had. And that first album has a lot of organ type sounds and a lot of piano type sounds on it. And I'd kind of already heard the sort of like the Gary Newman stuff, which seemed really electronic and it really seemed like the future. Mm. And bands with the kind of organ sounds sounded just fractionally behind 
the times to me. Some songs on, on the album I really like. Electricity, uh, Red Frame, White Light, and a couple of others. Well, they had three sure. singles. Uh, those two songs and Messages were the three singles. Mm, yeah. And they supported Gary Newman on his first big tour, I think. Yeah, As yeah. well, which they were grateful for. They said that really gave them a leg up. Well, actually, you, I should go back. Their first ever gig was with Joy Division, apparently. Which is, uh, uh, no, maybe their second or, or third well, gig. Very early on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's, that's yeah, quite yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, within but, their first few weeks. Yeah, yeah. but um, anyway, in any case, this album was... Um, was really well received and I mean it did quite well for I think better than they expected it, it sort of reached number 27 in the UK yeah um, and ZZ Top were big fans of it <laughs> yeah which is a weird one <laughs> yeah. but hey yeah, apparently they used to play this album before their own shows yeah I, remember. I mean how the hell would a ZZ Top audience react to that they would not have enjoyed that no, no, mm. no that's right this album was self-produced as well which is mm. interesting given that Martin Hannett had been in the picture previously mm. there's a co-production credit to someone called Chester Valentino mm. who is Paul Collister who was their manager and live sound engineer and Andy has described Chester Valentino, Paul Collister, as having long, greasy hair, green teeth, pumps that the soles were coming away from so they looked like the mouth of a dog or something, and he never bathed. So this was Chester Valentino, the co-producer <laughs> of their first album. So it does have that, uh, you know, underground you know, garage band kind of mm. production sort of quality to it you know it was it was their own studio in retrospect i like the album a lot more than mm. i probably did when i heard it for the first time in 1981 you know as a as yeah a i liked it really a lot too do you like the song uh, bunker soldiers uh, in the chorus there's a series of random letters that they call out oh, yeah 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 and those letters are translated into numbers uh and the letters that spell out bunker soldiers uh, are scattered in amongst them. Ah, that's uh, I've been trying to work out if any of the other letters spell out anything, but they don't seem to. I did find the word institutionalized. Ah, okay. That was about it. Spent ages mixing the letters around, trying to see whether there was some kind of <laughs> hidden message there, but there wasn't. It's uh, it's just a series of letters. That's something I think that's really interesting about about OMD, particularly on that first album, that there is this slightly weird kind of random vocal kind of thing. So mm. some of the backing vocals sound a bit like football chanting kind of things. And, yeah. and I think it does give it a really kind of human element, which might otherwise be missing from quite an, an electronic album. I did mention uh, Red Frame White Light as being one of my favourites, and I don't know mm. if you know the background to that song. Well, it's about a phone booth in Liverpool, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, it's about um, neither the Humphreys nor the McCluskey family had a phone. This phone booth outside the local pub, the Railway Inn, served as the kind of home phone for mm. maybe several families, and the number was 632 which features in the lyric. So the phone would kind of ring and there'd be people, you know, like playing football in the park nearby and they'd kind of answer the phone and, and you know, it'd be someone calling from Italy. You know this for a fact? Yeah. They were calling from Italy. So there was a real Italian connection with this. This is, <laughs> this is, uh, no, well, this was after the first album came out. They still had this, you know, as their office. I thought know, this was other families were giving. As their calls. office number. <laughs> this was the... <laughs> Perhaps I haven't told this anecdote as well as I thought I told it. <laughs> <laughs> but for a year or so, maybe 18 months, this was the number. This was the official orchestral manoeuvres in the dark phone number. And 
uh, according to my sources, uh, you know, there was a park nearby and the phone would ring and people would kind of run to the phone and, it, you know, it could be someone calling from anywhere in Europe saying... Like Italy, for example. Hello, like Italy, saying, is orchestral manoeuvres in the dark there, please? In an Italian accent. <laughs> no, I'm not going <laughs> to... Well, I, I just want to say right now that I'm so tempted to dial that number you on should. that phone. <laughs> just, just edit in the... <laughs> is Andy McCluskey Hello? there? Yes. <laughs> Shit. Well, it is currently the middle of the night. Yeah, it's the middle of the night there, but um, I think we should do it. Okay. 0011. Plus 44. 44. We'll get us to the UK. 151 is Liverpool. And the red frame white light phone number, <laughs> 632 The number you have called oh, is no. <laughs> Yeah, but I have the feeling that uh, once that uh, phone number appears on the works bill, yeah. <laughs> they'll come straight to me <laughs> and say, what's, what's this phone called to Liverpool? But, hey, uh, have, you, uh, have you finished with this story yet? Well, British Telecom <laughs> removed the phone booth in 2017 and after fan protests, it was returned and restored and it's now there with a commemorative plaque. Oh, nice. In the village of Mel's. On Which the is Wirral. somewhere in Liverpool. On the Wirral. <laughs> <laughs> Which is near the ferry... Across the, the <laughs> I'm just I'm going to throw out a theory of mine, and Graham will probably shoot me down here. That Sting, of the Police, was a fan of this album because towards the end of Messages, there's a little melody. sings, which is very reminiscent of something that Sting sings in uh, Invisible Sun. Yeah, have a listen to it and, um, and make your own, uh, draw your own conclusions. But this would be about right because um, Invisible Sun was on the, the Police's third album, which came out the following year. So this this would all sit nicely, according to my theory. Have a listen, see what it you would, think. Do you know for a fact that he liked OMD? I don't, but that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, mm. There's no reason why he wouldn't have. But well, I, again, I think he stole that. Sting didn't like Gary Newman, so... Uh. Well, that's true. He's a bit of regular there. Sting didn't like a lot of things, but then on the other hand, he did like a lot of things. So <laughs> mm, he's okay. a well-balanced individual. Okay, well, if I find that melody, I'll, I'll line them up together. Yeah, we'll do it. Do your magic. Do my magic. Um, okay. Can I also say that Peter Saville did the cover for this album, and he yes. did the, the covers of about four or five of their albums, the famous uh, factory graphic designer. Yeah, the Joy he Division and New Order did album ev cover Everything, guy. yeah, and a lot of other bands, obviously, apparently subsequent the, the to Apparently the cover of their first album cost quite a bit, apparently. But he was an expensive guy. I mm. mean, they lost a lot of money on his designs, but he won an award for it. Him, him and the co-designer, Ben Kelly, actually won an award that year for, this, for the cover of this album. So my point being that this mm. set them out as something quite different to the other bands at the time, apart from their sound. They had a look and an image yeah, that yeah, was quite... Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of synth duos that came subsequent to this, but I don't really think there was many others doing this at 1980. A good start. Yes, I think certainly a creditable start to their career. A credit to their parents. <laughs> Shall we, uh, are we moving on? Yes, let's go to organisation. Well, um, the Messages single... Or not. <laughs> ...was re-recorded. Tell me just, this is the sound of me turning a page back. <laughs> I insist on every Morsel. single song they recorded being name-checked. 
and the backstory thereof. Not in a phone booth again, is it? <laughs> I've got a selection of fine tooth combs here. <laughs> you don't say. Go on, please. But there was a link with organisation that they realised they didn't know what they were doing in the studio despite their well-dressed and well-presented co-producer. <laughs> so the um, Carol Wilson at Dindisk said, how about we re-record a song from the first album, Messages, release it as a single. This is a few months after the first album came out. His name's Mike Howlett and he's a good producer. So they re-recorded Messages and it got to number 13. Mike Howlett's version. The yeah. gong bassist, yes. amongst other things. Mm. And future producer of Flock of Seagulls and Tears for Fears and Gang of, Gang Four, of Four and Giant Armour Trading. An email pal of mine. Mm. That's right. You, you, you've harassed him <laughs> on, on occasion. I have, yeah. well, is, And hunters and collectors. Didn't he live in, uh, or he was in Brisbane for a while there? He's actually Australian. He's Why did you harass him again? I Mark? didn't harass him at all. That was never proven. <laughs> <laughs> I was never convicted on those charges <laughs> and I resent the implication. <laughs> What did you contact him about? I can't remember. Um, I don't know. I came across his details somewhere and I just asked him something. Oh, this is years ago. But he was very lovely anyway. I'm a yeah. big fan of his, big fan of his production. Yeah, he's done some good anyway. stuff. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So that's why I felt it was worthwhile mentioning. I'm glad you felt that way. <laughs> I'll cut that out, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Graham. Okay. Organisation. Mm. Are we happy to move on to the second <laughs> album? Released October 1980, produced by OMD and Mike Howlett. Mike Howlett. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Very successful album, huge hit, mm. number six, top ten, mm. with off the back of Enola Gay, which uh, was the single, the only single from the album, unless I'm wrong, uh, which was written before the first album but didn't make it onto the first album for some oh, really? strange reason because it's, around... it's such an incredibly catchy song. Mm. And this, for me, is probably where I first came across them. I may have heard Electricity, but I still think probably yeah, Enola yeah. Gay was... Yeah. Was my well, it was a big hit here in Australia. It was a hit here in Australia. It was the kind of thing that we talk about friends of ours that didn't like the sort of music that we liked and, and ostracised mm. us from their society. Um, <laughs> may We may come to some agreement over things like this. Mm. Um, and, and whatever you were talking about the other week, a, a band that you went to see, you ran into some people from school there, that kind of thing. This would have been the song they would have quite liked. Yeah, yeah. I have a memory of going to a party and um, someone there played Enola Gay about six times in a row. Wow. I just couldn't. And that, that someone up. was Mike Howlett. <laughs> <laughs> But it was amazing. Interesting about Enola Gay, um, it did really well everywhere, but it, it bombed in Japan. Ooh. <laughs> Can I say that? How are the sales Can in Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Is it too okay. soon? If we're talking it's about editing soon. bits it's out <laughs> subsequently. It's too soon. <laughs> Supposedly an anti-war song, because obviously it's named after the, the B-29 that dropped the first atomic bomb to uh, precipitate the end of the Second World War. But, yeah. Is it, it really? Yes. That's Do you think it's really an anti-war song? Well, I think, I I think it's meant think, to be slightly ambivalent. I think it's meant to be ambivalent because it's, mm. it's sort of like about a girl, but it's also it's about, a girl. That's right. about a plane. <laughs> well, and one man's love for that plane. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to land that plane. Yeah. In the absence of a tape recorder. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's like he says it's 8.15 and that's the time that it's always been. I mean, mm -hmm. to me, that sounds like I know eight fifteen was when the bomb was dropped. Yeah, but that sounds like he's complaining about her being late. 
It's like <laughs> they, they were meant to meet up at eight o'clock, and mm. it's like it's. You always bring it back to you, don't you? It's eight fifteen, <laughs> and then he says, "We got your message on the radio. Condition is normal, and we're coming home." Mm. Um, I, I imagine the message on the radio is like like a text message, and um, you know how you <laughs> when you buy <laughs> when this you is buy <laughs> one long bow. <laughs> <laughs> you know when <laughs> when you buy shampoo and conditioner, and the conditioner is either normal, oily, or dry. So he says condition is normal, and I'm coming home. So she's she's asked him to buy some stuff. He's got it, and he's coming home. That's how I. That's how you see it. That's how well, see you're it. welcome to that odd view. <laughs> it is like he, he's obviously using the the plane as for the imagery, mm. but I think he's he's singing to a girl. Well, it was somewhat controversial at the time. It well, did it cause was, a bit of it a was ruckus. banned. Yes, by the BBC. It was banned on the BBC children's program Swap Shop because it was thought to be promoting homosexuality. <laughs> Really? Wow. Oh, yeah. Because of the word gay. Yeah. That's an even longer bow than Graham's conditioner <laughs> one. I find that song really quite chilling because 8.15 was the time that the bomb was dropped. Um, there's the line, is, is mother proud of little boy today? And mm. Anola Gay was named after the mother of the pilot, I think. Well, the bomb the- was called Little Boy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, wow. Well, they had two bombs, one for Nagasaki and one for Hiroshima, and the, mm. the Hiroshima one was called Little Boy. And the line conditions normal was, I think, what the pilot said on the yeah. way back. It's everything's like, fine. Yeah, everything's fine. It's Nothing like, to see that, here. <laughs> I just think that's such an extraordinary. I mean, like, it was standard procedure, of course. Mm. Yeah. But you go, okay, well, we've just destroyed Liberated <laughs> tens of thousands of people. Everything's we've done our job and we're on our mm, way back. We're going yeah. home now. Can yeah. I just say that the song has a standard one six four five chord progression? Which Can you sing that chord progression for us now? If that's standard, is it? One, six, four, five. One, six, four, five. We're just like, stand by me and every breath you take. Every breath you take. So um, even though it was considered uh, very new as a new electronic mm, pop mm, song, yeah, yeah. The, the methods they used, yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty standard. I think that's what makes OMD interesting because they were good pop songs, great pop songs, just done in a slightly different way. Yeah, we yeah. talk about that a lot. But this album was apparently heavily influenced by Joy Division. Um, back oh. to them again. Uh, they, mm. they were really, I mean, obviously this is Joy Division's time, October 1980, um, not long after... Um, uh, Ian Curtis had killed himself, but the, this I can hear the influence of that sort of mm. thing in in the coldness in this and the kind mm. of it's a little bit despairing some of the music, or it has that melancholy mm. feel to it. Mm. I mean, there's some great great tracks if we can move on from Anola Gay uh, <laughs> on the album. Um, the strange cover of the more I see you. I always thought that was a Peter Allen song, but apparently it's, it's from the 40s. Yeah, yeah it's an old, it's, it's an old, really song, old song, but it's it's a weird version. Don't forget the Human League had also done their sort of similar cover version. Mm. Um, the name eludes me at the moment on the second album, but similar kind of loving thing. feeling. Yeah, you've you lost, lost that, that love and feeling. Lost that love brothers. That's right. Mm. Um, I think Promise is really good, but I also like Statues. Is it Statues? Mm. Yeah, Which Statues is, it, is about great. an oil refinery. Is it? I mean, it doesn't get much more Joy Division than that. <laughs> I 
I really like the misunderstanding, which um, as much as I liked the songs on the first album, they were a little thin. Mm. Whereas mm. the misunderstanding had a lot of muscle about it. The production yeah. on this is, is yeah. superior. Mr. Howlett once again. Mm. Mm. And uh, I, I mentioned to you guys the song Promise, which mm. you just mentioned then. This could be my favourite. OMD song and uh, when I was listening to it recently I thought I know this song so well and I didn't know why because it was never a single and Patrick you mentioned that it was on the Vinyl Virgins compilation was mm. it the first song? Oh, I'm not sure a whole bunch of songs that Virgin put out to showcase their yeah. bands and, and for some reason they decided to put that on it when you know, it wasn't a single or No or anything but I love the song it's a great pop song verse And then the chorus is like a human league thing. Next time you guys have a listen mm. to it, have a listen to the chorus. I'm sure the Human League have done something really similar. Well, it's to a that. similar time. I mean, this is sort of the time mm. of this stuff. Up until you described that song as like the Human League and Poppy and so on, I was thinking that characterising Organisation as a pretty uncommercial and uncompromising album, and a song like Stanlow. is kind of epic and orchestral and so on. Apart from Enola Gay, it's not really a pop album in the kind of classic mm. sense of the word. And apart from Andy McCluskey, who wrote Enola Gay, the other guys, Winston, actually Winston of the other is guys. Is he still the in other the guys, picture at this stage, <laughs> no, Winston? No, so He's been the, asked to leave. the manager, the manager <laughs> Paul Coloster and Paul Humphreys, hated Enola Gay. And they said, that's pop rubbish, we don't want it on the album, we don't want it as a single. And, and in some ways, the organisation has come, is in the popular imagination as the Enola Gay album, whereas in fact, you know, Enola Gay was really different, I think, to the rest of the, the album. The standout track. Mm. Well, I mean, you might say it was uncompromising and uncommercial, but the album did reach number six. So it did yeah, very well right. for them. So, um, yeah, once again, you know, they thought they were never going to sell anything and they were just going to... Yeah. Have a laugh with this money. Yeah, from yeah. Virgin. Well, I like the idea that the manager of the band, Paul Collister, hated the song because he thought it was too poppy. Mm. You know, it was a different time. <laughs> yes. yes. You can't be too commercial. So um, we're happy with that? Yeah. What was the next one? Uh, Architecture, Architecture and Morality. Um, November 1981, continuing in the great tradition of doing a, about an album a year, mm. uh, as they did in those days. This, to me, is the real beginning of the OMD that we maybe think of today, mm. the um, John Hughes soundtrack kind of band, because mm. I reckon he heard the song Souvenir, which is I'm going to jump to, and just went, wow, this this is the kind of teen angsty song that I can use in my movies, or it's, which is exactly what I'm looking for, maybe. Mm. Mm. That song is a fantastic song, but it it's- really is something... Evocative. This was the only bit of OMD vinyl I ever bought, was the souvenir single. Yeah, I loved it. I just thought it was perfect. Well, it's sung by Paul Humphreys, isn't it? He yeah. wrote it. And Andy hated it. Yeah. So we're just talking about Enola Gay, the opposite now. He yeah, hated yeah, it right. and didn't want it on, on there and didn't want it released. And I think he had his back up about it, but eventually came to see it 
for what it was, which is a, a fantastic pop song. Mm. I mean, it's it's a beautiful song. I love it's it. Their biggest, I've forgotten mm. how good it was. Is it the biggest selling single in England, I think? I think you're probably three, not far off that. Yeah, according to my sources, <laughs> it's it's right up there. <laughs> according to our Wikipedia sources that's been printed out for us. My piece of paper. Yes, it is. Um, and it does have a kind of almost hymnal quality. Mm. Well, that choral sort of thing going behind it. I mean, quite futuristic sounding for, mm, for November mm. 81. Uh, Mike Howlett involved again. All three singles off this album did really well. Souvenir, Joan yeah, of Arc yeah. and Made of Orleans were all top ten hits. Can I just say, at what point does a band write a song about Joan of Arc and then decides to write another one? <laughs> well, there's a lot there. <laughs> Was there too many unanswered questions about the first <laughs> You obviously don't <laughs> know about Joan of Arc, Graham. There's, she Huge was uh, story there. She was Noah's wife, wasn't she? she that's <laughs> well, she was Joan of Arc and she was Maid of Orleans. And I yeah. think if you've, it's like, okay, we've done Joan of Arc. But yeah, it was, and it was called what, the Waltz? Maid of Orleans Waltz? Or something, something like that, yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of material there. Now, do you guys know where the, the title of the album came from? I bet you do, but I'm going to throw it to you and Go see on. if you do. You? Was it Peter Savile's girlfriend? I think it may have been his girlfriend. Anyway, one of the girls from Martha and the Muffins, one of the muffins, um, <laughs> yeah. suggested the album title because there was a book called, I think, The Reverse, Morality and Architecture. Uh, and I can't remember the name of the author, but uh, she she seemed to think that this was a good album title for them. So they they decided that yes, they would they oh. would confuse the public and confound the expectations by uh, naming their an album architecture and morality. Which I think is I think she's right. It's a great name. I think yeah, it's mm, great. It mm. is extremely pretentious, yeah. but it is November nineteen eighty one, and <laughs> hey, it reached number three. So yeah, there you yeah. go. It is nineteen eighty one, and I think on the pretension graph. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a peak <laughs> period of pretension right there. Another Peter Savile album design. Uh, he just that's his third for them uh, in a row. Fantastic looking album cover mm. as well. And he, he made another significant contribution to the album in that he lent them his red Carmen gear for the souvenir film clip. Oh, nice. Which is a car. Yes. Which is a car, which is sort of a kind of... I know this, but Almost a Porsche. Yeah, it's a lovely car. It's a, it's mm. a B-dub, isn't it, of sorts? Mm. B-dub, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, Thomas Toppy mentioned the Carmen Gear in one of his songs. He did. It's a popular rock star vehicle. Mm. Mm. Um, some I, people say that this is quintessential OMD, this album. Mm. Patrick, would you, mm. would you go that far? This well, is the peak OMD album. Yeah, yeah. I've always loved this album, and listening to it again, it's struck me as just how cohesive and just from beginning to end, it's just endlessly inventive. It's mm. got some absolutely beautiful, just lovely songs and some kind of real kind of clanging industrial stuff is in there as well. Weird lyrical sensibilities. I think there's another song um, about an oil refinery. Um, I think sea, well, Sealand is, is about an oil refinery. Oil refineries are under, underrepresented in pop music. Mm, mm, they tried to write credit. another song about a, a phone booth because yeah. that they'd written two about Joan of Arc, two about oil refineries, one about a phone booth. But it really is a kind of a concept album. It feels to me like a concept album. Mm. And all of the things they were trying to do in the first two albums, I think, really came to fruition. Coalesced. With this one, yeah. And the technology helped as well. So mm. they were using a Mellotron 
Yeah, so I was going to mention they were using the Mellotron, yeah. Yeah, so they used something called the three violins sound mm. on uh, the Made of Orleans. Ooh, what, what would that be like? That would be <laughs> like a cluster of cluster stringed of instruments. Mm. Yeah. And that sound is just amazing. But, like, it's a 1960s sound. Mm. Yeah. So it's interesting that that was the quintessential kind of modern electronic sound. like a, a sampler so you play a note on the keyboard on the mellotron mm. and it triggers a sound almost like on a piece of tape that's loose yeah yeah and it's um yeah so it was, it was an early version of sampling i guess yeah 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 absolutely but yeah. a great sound if you ever heard strawberry fields forever mm. that's the the, the classic yeah, right. uh, sound that everyone remembers and it was really quite brave of them to open the album with the new stone age It's got that kind of frenetic, weird, slightly distorted acoustic guitars or something Um, and a pretty kind of unattractive synth line, kind of shrieking kind of synth line. Again, for a kind of a pop band, Mm. or a band that was perceived as a pop band, they were dancing to the... The beat of their own drum? Mm. The the beat of their own lindrum, I should have said. (laughs) Well, I said before we started recording, I kind of hinted that um, I may not have been a bigger fan of OMD Mm. as you guys. And what did it for me was I didn't like those two Joan of Arc songs. So as much as I liked Souvenir, they kind of lost me on the Joan of Arc singles. And consequently, I don't think I listened to OMD from from that point on. Okay, right. So um, for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to speak about the next couple of albums, <laughs> Dazzle Ships and Junk Culture. I've only just recently heard those albums for the first uh-huh, time. Okay, right, right. Shall we talk about Dazzle Ships now? Released... Yeah. Yes, yes. About 18 months later, March 1983. It was a kind of a, a statement against everything that had happened to the band so far. I think oh. they were Andy's girlfriend had entered a beauty contest and had been crowned Miss Great Britain. So the headlines were Sexy Miss GB Dates Pop Star Andy. So Andy said, I've turned into Rod Stewart without even trying. <laughs> And he was driving around with his girlfriend. His girlfriend had the car with the, you know, Miss Great Britain, you know, emblazoned all over Was she wearing the sash? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> she never took it off. And yeah, as Andy said, for a boy who didn't want to be a pop star, you know, because they were quite arty in their own minds, this is all getting too much. And clearly architecture and morality, they were kind of pretty boys. There were a lot of other kind of synth pop duos around at about that time. Mm. And so this was, okay, let's throw it out and start again. Well, I think they also thought they could do anything. They'd reached that point where they'd been so successful pretty much doing what they wanted and how they wanted to do it that they thought, well, we're going to push the boat Mm. out a little bit further and really do what we want to do. Um, Pride comes before a fall, as the Bible (laughs) says. (laughs) We don't have many biblical quotes in this podcast. Um, But, yeah, it was kind of predictable that this album would bomb and it was badly received. Um, it charted okay, it got to number five, but mm. disappeared quickly yeah, after yeah. that. The thing is, I, can I just say I really liked it? It was uh, a, a move on from Mike Howlett. They went with a guy called uh, Rhett Davies, mm. who at the, around that time was also working on Brian Ferry's Boys and Girls album, mm. which is a very lush album, not mm. like this at all. Um, but I, I quite like it as well. It's weird. I mean, there's a lot of strange things on this album, but there's still quite a lot of hits. I mean, Genetic Engineering, I think, was the only single. 
Telegraph is, you know, it's not out of place on any of their no, other albums no. either. So I don't quite know why it was so. There's a lot of, you know, self-indulgence, I suppose. Yeah. There is there is the song about uh, the time zones. And it's really just a listing of, of times, different things. And you sort of, I find it fascinating because I'm waiting to see what will happen. Yeah, there's a lot of maybe a little bit of wankery on it, but. I kind of like it, and mm. of all the things we've made, is a great song as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really yeah, yeah, that's that. I think that's the kind of standout mm. song. I think it stood the test of time of this album, but yeah, mm. it just wasn't what people wanted to hear. And I mean, music was changing quite quickly at that stage too. By March '83, people were maybe a little bit over quirky pop synth duos and had moved on to other things. Mm. I don't know. Well, Andy has said about the album, he said, look, before we did Dazzle Ships, people were saying, the world is listening to you now. What the hell are you singing about bloody saints for? Why aren't you doing something really positive and political and powerful? He went on to say, with Dazzle Ships, we hadn't coated the conceptual ideas in a beautiful veneer. We were saying, here's an idea, speaking clock synchronised. Isn't it great? Mm. Sadly, most of our audience replied, maybe, but it's not what I call music. (laughs) It's not what I want to hear. And as he has said in numerous interviews over the years, they managed to lose 90% of their audience between architecture and morality and Dazzle Ships. Mm. So architecture and morality sold 4 million copies, Dazzle Ships sold 300,000. But there was a being a bit bloody-minded too, I think, you know, mm. There was a large part of somebody said to them, you just need to do another architecture and morality and you'll be set forever, you know. This is yeah, it you can now. be the next genesis. Yes, just do that. And they were mm. like, we don't want to do that. We don't yeah, want to be yeah. like that, so we're going to do something difficult. Well, I think they felt that the audience would stay with them. Mm. And there were a couple of snappy type singles, maybe not kind of top five type singles, but you would have thought snappy enough singles to kind of keep them in the public consciousness. But um, Paul said that when he heard genetic engineering on the radio for the first time, he said, it sounded like hell. We had this huge bass drum that we insisted had to be the loudest on the track. But every time the bass drum hit on the radio, because of the compressors, all you could hear was the bass drum. You couldn't hear the tune. And they immediately realised it was going to flop. And that meant that the album was going to struggle. And that was kind of the beginning and the end of it. You know, Around that time, if pop bands didn't have a hit single, they mm. didn't have a hit album. You, you do know the backstory to this is another Peter Savile graphic designer uh, did the cover for this. You know what a Dazzle Ship is? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great story because um, the, the cover is brilliant, but it's inspired or is actually a, a painting called Dazzle Ships, which um, was the practice in the First World War of camouflage, basically, of camouflaging ships, so these sort of strange patterns that they would put all over them, which I don't know was particularly effective, but it looked amazing. It's worth having a look mm. at the images of the Dazzle ships. They, yeah, they looked fantastic. The painting is great, but have a look at the real ones as well. Yeah, <laughs> it's well worth it. So so that Dazzle ship has sailed. <laughs> sunk without trace. Sunk without trace. Yeah. I, I just want to add, I really liked ABC Auto Industry. Uh, you can see yeah. that samplers had come on the market at this point, and there was a great use of sampling in there. I thought Telegraph was like a rewriting of Enola Gay a little bit. Oh, 
Um, but the last, well, it wasn't the last song, but Silent Running, I thought was very Joy Division. This is I actually really like the conceptual songs and, and I think it's the more standard songs that are a little bit weak, a little bit half-finished mm, or a little yeah. bit uninspiring. They're kind of B-sides rather than kind of really strong album tracks. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's interesting, though, that they took a complete U-turn after this album. Basically had the shit scared out of them and went, well, we better not do anything <laughs> like that again. Yeah. <laughs> Which brings us to the last album we're going to talk about, Junk Culture. In April mm. 1984. Well, they were absolutely terrified. Yeah. Because they, they were on a terrible deal compared to most other bands. Their royalty deal was terrible. So they were getting four or five pence per pound, you know, per, per sales. And I think the producers got a cut of that. And it was so it was, it was a really terrible deal. And Andy says, you know, after Dazzle Ships, he said, the realisation was, you know, Paul's just bought a house. I've just bought a house. If we can't sell records, we don't get to make any more records. And it was a real kind of crisis point. You know, they were in serious debt, I think, around that time. Well, it's a funny thing that they didn't realise that before. I mean, I think they just had so much success that they really were in that position of thinking we can do whatever we want. Well, most bands don't have their sales drop 90% from one album to the next. So, I mean, if it had dropped, you know, 30 or 40%, you go, okay, well, you know, that second house probably isn't going to happen for a while. Mm. But this album brought them back big time. Mm. UK number nine, four well, singles. Locomotion. Locomotion, big hit, big hit here, even here in Australia, or, or a sizable hit anyway. It was the top five in the UK. Mm. The Junk Culture album was sufficiently kind of powerful that the record company said, why don't you come to Australia? And Japan. Travel around Australia and Japan, and there are some great support bands. <laughs> there are some great support bands, especially in Brisbane. In There's Brisbane, a band called yeah. Dance Theatre who you have to have supporting you. And I've always been a fan of dance theatre, not least because <laughs> a friend of mine was in the band. Come on, Mark, talk us through it. When did you find out that Actually, you were going to be Actually, two supporting? friends of mine. Graham, you were in dance theatre for a while. Mark, you were in dance theatre for, for the whole time. Um, you know, 82, 83, 84, 85. I was like the Winston of uh, dance theatre. <laughs> the <laughs> inanimate electric object, <laughs> given <laughs> human status. <laughs> <laughs> they pretty much unplugged me almost immediately. <laughs> so, Mark, talk us through your experience of supporting orchestral manoeuvres in the well, dark. Yeah, in we, we supported them on the 19th of August 1984, and there's a great photo of me talking to Andy afterwards. And they were lovely. They were really nice. It was a great show. I mean, we, we played a good show, and the sound was great. They were very generous with the lights and PA. Um, it was a big crowd, probably a 1,000 people. Everybody in Brisbane turned out for it. Um, really enjoyable. I mean, I was a fan, as as we all were at that mm. stage. It was it was a real kind of honour to do it, and I really enjoyed the show. It's a nice little brush with fame, I suppose, but mm. they were just lovely. They were really down-to-earth guys. We hung out afterwards, and, you know, there was none of this sort of, like, get out of here, you know, you separate <laughs> Get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> uh, but we had a good time. I remember that. The Forex ran free <laughs> that night. That was your favourite beer then as it is now. It was now. the only beer. There were two beers in Brisbane at the time, Brisbane Bitter <laughs> and Forex. So that was the, the two that you had. And, um, and Patrick, you interviewed them that year uh, as well. Yes, yeah. Certainly they were great live. Yeah, myself and my brother John and our friend Mary Quilty interviewed Andy for the Melbourne Uni newspaper. Uh, again, he was fantastic and really kind of open and expansive and keen to talk 
Mm. Um, really intelligent and not the slightest airs no. or graces and just a really good bloke and someone you would love to have a beer with. A 4X in Brisbane, as you were fortunate enough to do. Well, he was 25 at the time, I realised. He mm. was still a young bloke. Yeah. I would have been 19 going on 20, So, but there's a big age gap at that point mm. of your life. I know I was a fan of theirs as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and my brother and I were playing in a band at the time and we did a cover version of Julia's song, which I mentioned to Andy and he expressed or feigned interest and I said, oh, I've got a tape of it, you know, I, I can give it to you after the show. And he said, can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where the friendliness ended. <laughs> so suddenly the mood in the room changed. And then so I kind of went backstage afterwards with the tape and he was nowhere to be found. And He's having know, a beer with me. And I, yeah, well, <laughs> well, he couldn't top that experience of that great guy in Brisbane. And so I was left holding, you know, the TDK 30 or whatever it was. The cheap tape. With the recording of Julia's song that was going to make us stars, if only Andy heard it. And I've listened to it, you know, in subsequent years and it's diabolically bad. And so he did you a favour. It was, it was. By disappearing. It was absolutely a bonus. Should we talk about the album at all? Oh, the album. <laughs> What was it called again? <laughs> Junk Culture, four singles. <laughs> um, I, I don't mind any of the singles, which were Locomotion, Talking Loud and Clear, Tesla Girls, Never Turn Away. But I will say the first half of the album is a real attempt at reclaiming this commercial ground that they had lost to me. The second half is far more interesting. The songs mm, like Never mm. Turn Away, um, Hard Day, White Trash, which is one of the most kind of really hardcore breakup songs you'll hear in a while, while <laughs> yeah. if you listen to the lyrics. It is. It, yeah, um, it's, real, it's really violent. Yeah, yeah, it is. And um, But the second half has got some really good stuff on it. I mean, it's very drum machine, very mm. drumulator or Lindrum, whatever they well, were yeah, using. You, uh, there's a lot of DX7 sounds. Yeah. Like, I think the Yamaha DX7 had just come out. Getting thrashed, wasn't it? Mm. And uh, mm. there's a song called Talking Loud and Clear, which has got some classic DX7 presets. <laughs> The sound really is dated on this to me when I hear it. The, the co-producer, well, they did it with Brian Tench. I don't know anything about him, but it's a very deliberate attempt at tapping into what's happening in April 1984 and trying mm. to have success, mm. which, which they did because it was, um, you know, a, a decent hit for them and probably set the ground for their subsequent success in America, which was quite big over time. Mm. But this was probably the first album that got them that kind of notice in America. Mm. I remember mm. dancing to Locomotion in like Brisbane nightclubs. It, it got flogged everywhere. Mm. If you'd come to the gig, you could have danced to it there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely like the album. I think there are some real standout tracks. I think the title track is really interesting. Mm. And, yeah, I do like White Trash, um, Hard Day. It's a little bit... A little bit whiny, hard day. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, some really good songs. The singles, Tesla Girls and Locomotion, are a little bit too sugary for mm. me. Um, you know, I was into the more melancholy stuff, as I said on, on previous podcasts. I do like the album, but I think they were starting to sound a bit more generic as the technology that was available was starting to be used by more or less everyone. Mm. So... As you say, the digital synthesizers, which had a much cleaner, clearer sound, but kind of lacked a bit of warmth. And you could borrow a Fairlight computer from someone and the, the, the emulator sampling keyboards and all that sort of stuff. The drum machine sounds. 
that's uh, that's what I mean. I think it's really dated. Mm. The sound of this album, I find it a little bit hard to listen to. Yeah, they'd abandoned for the most part the kind of rougher industrial outside world sounds. So it does sound kind of more airless and artificial. Mm. As an album, I think it's a solid pop album, but they were starting to get a bit more generic. I'm yeah. going to throw this over to Graham now because we're going to leave this album will be the end of where we start, where we finish talking about OMD. But you would make a case, Graham, that their best work came after this, would you? Um, in 85, 86, that kind of thing? When they no, started no, their hits I, in America? I, honestly, I only really heard the singles. Which are? So, things like So In Love, um, so the song from Pretty In Pink soundtrack, which was If You Leave, yep. and and I really liked Forever Live and Die. Mm, yes, yeah. with the go-go beat. But as I said, after Souvenir, I, I, I rarely listened to <laughs> You really had a problem with them after that, didn't you? Yeah. I think we need to do a separate podcast well, and we'll find out what went on there. Mm, was this some kind of atheistic tendency coming through? It, it was when I went to Valley's Leagues Club and tried to get in. And they, <laughs> you they turned away at the door. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you should have come because I had a backstage pass. <laughs> Don't hung tell out me if that. you wanted, you know. <laughs> So I guess if we're reflecting upon OMD, I mean, they they released, I think, Crush the year after and subsequent albums, but I think when Andy and Paul look back at the mid to late 80s era and so on, I think they did feel that the quality of the albums dropped off a bit from junk culture onwards. And singles aside, you know, I would say that that's true. But but I think if we're reflecting on orchestral manoeuvres, you know, how, how do we feel? Um, I think they were a really important electronic pop band from the early 80s. Uh, those first couple of albums I, I really liked. It was really important for the post-punk movement to start embracing this technology and, mm. and they were, you know, people like Gary Newman and <coughs> OMD and Tears for Fears, they were grabbing it with both hands. So, um, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy them, but uh, I wish I stuck with them. <laughs> I wish I stuck with them longer than I did. They influenced a lot of people. I mean, Vince Clark, who was one of the mm. early members of Depeche Mode, said when he heard electricity, he decided that that would be something he could do, and that's what started him on the road to doing electronic music. Um, they supported Depeche Mode in, in America on their first very big tour, ironically, <laughs> yeah. supporting the band they inspired. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They broke up, oh, in the mid-'80s, I suppose, didn't they? It was just Andy mm. for a while. Uh, but the interesting thing is when I saw them getting back together in 2006, they hadn't seen each other for quite a long time. And in this filmed reunion, they just sort of shook hands and went, hello, hello, hello. It was all, <laughs> it was all very polite. So the whole band, was, the whole thing was very polite. There's no great stories of mm. punch-ups or dramas. It was all very, just sort of very English and nice. Yeah. No no big you know, ups or downs. But I think what they what they brought to the table, certainly worth noting, yeah. If you can picture them on the stage at Eric's in 1978 doing something completely different to everyone else, and that was really the kind of, that's what post-punk was about, I think, just trying something different, and they were trying something different without really having the technology at their disposal to do anything very different in terms of just having like a, an instrument from the 60s that cost 25 quid and some organ that sounded exactly like an organ. Um, but they still managed to kind of fashion something a bit different out of that and they did that on an album by album basis the technology was really kind to them in terms of um, the evolution of synthesizer technology and so on but they really took that on board brilliantly album by album by album they were so versatile in terms of the singles and the album stuff and the kind of epic orchestral kind of things and and the fantastically commercial singles and their manager oh sorry the owner of of din disc 
said about them that they didn't know if they wanted to be Joy Division or ABBA. And I, th I think that's a really good summation of them, that in a way they were both, and I think that's a really remarkable uh, thing to be capable of doing, and they were fantastic at it.